Praise him. There have been many kings. There have been many kings throughout history, to be sure. But there's only one king of kings. There's only one king who can right all of the wrongs in this world. Only one king to whom every knee and every tongue will confess and every knee will bow as Lord. That's Jesus Christ. In John's vision of him returning to this earth to defeat evil once and for all, it's described in Revelation 19.16. He says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In one of the great prophetic Psalms, 95.3, it says, the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. And of course, by his own admission, just before being delivered to be crucified, Pilate asked Jesus in Mark 15.2, are you the King of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you've said so. In other words, you got that right, pal. There have been many kings in this world and many kingdoms, but there is only one true king. And yet, when we think of kingdoms, we usually think of those in the political or geographical sense, of course. But the truth is, we establish kingdoms in our hearts and we establish kingdoms in our minds throughout our lives that we We allow to exert all manner of authority over us, kingdoms that have more to do with infatuations and addictions and preferences and desires and fears that we hold and failures, even even personal accomplishments, far more than they have anything to do with a government or a nation. And, And it is those kingdoms ruled by false gods. They're just idols that we prop up in our own hearts that rule over our lives, at least some areas of our lives, if we allow them to. But remember what the psalmist said. He is a great king above all gods. Gods with a little g, right? So no matter the the kings or kingdoms that we are subject to or that we subject ourselves to, whether real or perceived, natural or spiritual, they will, all of them, bow in humble submission to the one true king, as will we, either by our own volition, our own will, while we still have the choice, or by his will once we don't. Either way, there is truly only one king, and and so Daniel, the protagonist in our story today, gets a powerful glimpse of this king, as we'll see as we continue in our sermon series this morning, working our way through the book of Daniel, where we're going to begin wading our way into the second half of the book. Of course, we've completed, if you've been here, you know, we've completed the first six chapters, which are narratives. They're uh, vignettes, little stories about the life and experiences of Daniel and his friends. And now as we begin chapter 7, it introduces us to a series of prophetic visions that Daniel has. Um, And also, by the way, this is the last chapter of the book that is written in Aramaic. Uh, From chapter 8 on, the writing goes back to Hebrew. The book is not laid out chronologically at this point, uh, certainly not all the way through, as the vision that we're going to read about today in chapter 7 was actually given to Daniel between the events that happened in chapters 4 and chapter 5, between those two. So this is a bit of a flashback uh, in the story of Daniel chronologically, even as the visions that he has look ahead to, of course, the future. And so when you consider that Daniel was having prophetic visions while the events that we've already covered in at least the first four chapters or so were happening, it makes for some interesting interplay between the visions of the others uh, who were, that he was interpreting and the visions that he was having uh, himself. And so let's turn there to Daniel chapter 7 uh, this morning. We'll have it on the screens as well if you'd prefer to read it that way. 
And as a broad explanation, before we get into the text, this particular vision is really a bit of an introduction or an overview of the rest of the visions in the book, which also happen to correlate with portions of the book of Revelation. As well, everything before and after chapter 7 in the book of Daniel really hinges on this revelation that we're looking at today. So chapter 7 is a bit of a pivot point for the entire book. And so after this chapter 7 vision, which again uh, is an overall view of, of past and future events, each subsequent vision in the following chapters chronicles in greater detail some aspect of this first vision. So we're going to want to keep uh, this chapter 7 vision in view over the coming weeks, even as we explore the visions that follow it, which means we're going to refer back to this particular vision as we go. And as we study our way through this chapter today, we're going to highlight several attributes of God that become very clear in this vision. And then we're going to talk about how each one of those God traits relates directly to us. Because as we look at these what are often very ominous and sometimes terrifying dreams and visions that Daniel has, it's important that we keep in mind the overall point of this great vision in chapter 7. Okay? The, his, his visions should ultimately stir great confidence in us, not great fear, because even though there may be hard times or frightening circumstances that lie ahead, and that can be said of anyone's life, right? None of us knows what tomorrow holds. Yet ultimately, if we choose the way of Christ, the true king, then our future is secure. And our victory over everything bad in this world is guaranteed according to his word. And that is the most essential point to be taken from this chapter 7 vision. The quintessential picture that Daniel describes of Christ the king securing our future even when things begin to look really, really bad for us. So let's read and explore and study today, of course. But more than anything else, let's stand back and marvel at the unparalleled nature and absolute authority and power of our King, Jesus Christ. So Daniel chapter 7, let's start out with verse 1. It says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. And then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. So Daniel's dream and visions came in 552 BC during the first year of the reign of Belshazzar when Babylonians were still in power before the events of chapter 5, which we've already looked at. And so he writes down this dream so he won't forget it, which, by the way, um, I encourage anyone to do. Anytime you feel like God is speaking to you about something that you may not remember otherwise, you should write it down. It's very interesting and can be a real faith builder, by the way, to look back on something that you wrote down years earlier when God was speaking to you and see how that message or guidance or instruction from the Holy Spirit was fulfilled later in your life. And so Daniel has a dream and visions. He writes them down and then he tells us what they were. Let's keep reading verses 2 through 8. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings, and then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. 
After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns. I considered the horns and behold... There came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. So as bizarre as this vision is, it sounds like Daniel was on acid or something, right? I mean, it's just crazy stuff. It is, in essence, an, alter an alternate version of the same vision that Nebuchadnezzar had back in chapter 2. If, if, uh, if you were here, you'll remember that Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of this massive image with a head of gold and chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze and legs of iron, and then it says its feet, ten toes, partly of iron and partly of clay. And as interpreted by Daniel... The dream represented four great kingdoms that would rise and fall before the final and eternal kingdom, the messianic kingdom of God, is established on earth. The head represented the Babylonian Empire. The chest and arms represented the Medo-Persian Empire. The middle and thighs represented the Roman Empire. And then the messianic kingdom, which was represented by the stone at the end of the vision, <clears throat> which ultimately destroys the others and fills the earth. And so... This new vision that Daniel has, although different imagery, paints the same historic and prophetic picture, but it goes into a bit more detail than Nebuchadnezzar's uh, dream. The wings being plucked off, uh, excuse me, the lion with the eagle's wings in verse 4 <clears throat> represents Babylon, which is confirmed by the prophet Jeremiah, who uses the same imagery uh, of a lion with, with uh, eagle's wings in chapter 49 of his book, to describe Nebuchadnezzar. The wings being plucked off represents the humbling and restoration of Nebuchadnezzar that we read about in Daniel chapter 4. The bear in verse 5 represents Medo-Persia, and it says that the bear was raised up on one side, which is a depiction of the unbalance in power between the Medes and the Persians. Right? The, the Persians were much stronger in that relationship uh, between the two partners, between them and the Medes. And that's confirmed in Daniel chapter 8, which we'll see next week. And then also in verse 5, Daniel says that the bear had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, which represent the three previous kings or kingdoms that Cyrus, who was the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, conquered before uh, Babylon, Astyages, the last king of the Median Empire, was conquered by Cyrus, who, uh, by the way, happened to be his grandson, um, in 550 BC. Then Anatolia, or Asia Minor, what is today Turkey, was conquered by Cyrus in 547 BC. And then Croesus, the king of Lydia, was conquered by Cyrus in 547 BC, or 546, according to some historians. And then at the end of verse 5, the bear is told to arise and devour much flesh. In other words, keep on conquering. And of course, we know that Cyrus did just that. He conquered Babylon in 539 BC, which we read about in chapter 5. And then verse 6 describes a leopard with four wings on its back and four heads. This identifies the Greek empire under Alexander the Great. Alexander um, invaded Asia Minor in 334 BC and within 10 years, he had conquered the entire Persian Empire. In fact, the, 
the sheer speed and sweeping nature of Alexander's conquest. He conquered most of the civilized world in such a short period of time. It was staggering, without precedent in the ancient world, which makes sense then that he's compared to the vision of a leopard, a very swift animal with wings, which would make it even faster. And then the four heads of the leopard represent the four generals who divided up Alexander's kingdom after his earthly death in 323 BC, which we see again in Daniel chapter 8. And then we get into verses 7 and 8 about the fourth beast. And I just want to mention at this point, this is such a detailed and accurately fulfilled prophecy that those historians who are not believers, who don't believe that the Bible is God's word, don't argue that these these prophetic texts are completely accurate historically to the point that they're so bothered by it that they claim that there's no way that Daniel's book could have been written by Daniel during this time period. Someone must have gone back after these historical events were fulfilled and actually written this as a historical account because they can't deny the accuracy of it. You see? So when we're all out of proof that what the Bible says is wrong, we just, we just deny that it's real, right? We're just going to say that someone must have written it later. It can't be real because they have no defense for these prophecies. And then we get into verses 7 and 8. There's a fourth beast which represents the Roman Empire. The beast had ten hordes which correspond to the ten toes of the image in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2 and represent ten kings, which are referenced in uh, verse 24 later in the chapter. Now, we know from Julius Caesar to Domitian, there were actually 12 Caesars. Uh, two of them reigned for just a few months, so they're generally not considered with equal weight uh, historically in light of the other 10. And so this could have been a historical uh, a view of them, even though that hadn't happened yet. But there are scholars who believe that these 10 horns represent 10 future kings yet to be fulfilled. We don't know for sure. Either way, the point to be taken from the fourth beast is that it ultimately represents the final human kingdom in which evil and rebellion will reach its apex on the earth. And few argue with that. And so all of that Save the bit about maybe the fourth beast is a bit of a history lesson chronicling the rise and fall of these great pagan kingdoms which build in strength and influence with each new kingdom. Right up to the fourth kingdom from which comes the Antichrist represented by the little horn. Uh, some scholars say it represents uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, he was a ruler of the Seleucid Empire which w rose up out of the four empires that came from Alexander after his death, divided up to four generals. We'll talk about all of that in much more detail next week, so I'm not going to get into it today. But those same scholars that say that uh, the little horn represents Antiochus Epiphanes uh, also agree that he prefigures the Antichrist. So either way you, you go, the little horn represents the Antichrist. If you read about the Antichrist in Scripture, you know that he is the epitome of evil. Obviously, he plays a major role in the end-time scenario that is played out throughout Revelation. And yet, in the next section of this story... There's a really interesting aspect in Daniel's retelling of the vision concerning the juxtaposition, uh, uh, the contrast between the Antichrist, uh, just as he begins to run off at the mouth here at the end of verse 8, and the King of Kings, who's introduced very abruptly in verse 9, which it turns out to be quite intentional, as we'll see. So let's read just the first half of verse 9, as Daniel now begins to describe some of the attributes 
of the true king, okay? He says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. So just as the little horn begins to spew his evil, you'd expect to be given some more detail about this looming character known as the Antichrist because he's such a prominent character elsewhere in Scripture. But instead, Daniel immediately, without giving any more stage to this final incarnation of evil on earth, very abruptly introduces the king. And so the structure of the writing clearly is intended to diminish the standing of the little horn. I love the fact that he's called a little horn too. And the fourth beast. They've been wreaking havoc on the earth up to this point. And we'll see more of that next week. And instead, instead of focusing on that, Daniel turns all of our focus to the one who truly matters. When uh, J.A. Motyer commented on this passage, he said, at the end of verse 8, we brace ourselves to hear more of this little horn to soak up a bit more terror Instead, we suddenly cut from the little horn and the fourth beast and we find ourselves watching a throne and judgment scene. It's as if the text says, don't over angst about that little horn. Instead, glue your eyes on this. I love it. And Daniel goes on to describe not the big bad fourth beast anymore, not the mouthy little horn anymore, not the horror that they are causing on earth anymore. No, Daniel goes on to describe in detail only one king. First of all, he says the king is pure. Daniel says his clothing was white as snow. He's radiantly pure. He's perfect in every way. What a contrast with all of the previous human kingdoms outlined in the vision, and especially this last one. There are these grotesque amalgamations, these combinations of different bloodthirsty animals that rain terror down on the earth. And here comes a king, perfect and pure. And all of a sudden, all of the attention is fixed on him alone. But what is Daniel trying to tell us here? He's saying, take your eyes off the world. And fix them on God because he alone is pure perfection. And only something pure can make something else pure. Right? What what do blood transfusions do? They replace bad blood with good blood. What do skin grafts do? They replace damaged skin with healthy skin. What do organ transplants do? They replace broken, non-functioning organs with healthy, working organs. If we want to be purified... We want to be made whole, made perfect. That happens by the hand of only one king, the one who happens to be healthy and pure, perfect in every way. There is no other. No matter how awesome or terrifying or impressive or loud or assuming or anything else in our life is, there is no other who can complete us and perfect us. Only one true king. And he stands in vast, stark contrast to all of the others because of his striking purity that Daniel talks about. And then he says the hair of his head is like pure wool, which is an allusion to the king's age and wisdom. In other words, the king is eternal. As we've seen in the vision so far, all other kingdoms fail and all other kings fall. And when you belong to a temporary kingdom and you serve a temporary king, Your security and blessing is temporary, right? You see, in any kingdom, your security, your blessing is only good as the king's longevity. 
I went to seminary with some pastors from uh, some of the Eastern Europe nations, some who have been through a pretty severe political and military upheaval in their lifetime. And when I asked one of them one afternoon, I said, how does your church fare in your country? He said, it depends on when you ask me. When we've been ruled, he said, by three different nations in my lifetime alone, and they have not all been friendly to the church. You may have security and blessing in the kingdom that you're living in today, but tomorrow it could be gone because security and blessing in earthly kingdoms is only guaranteed as long as the king lasts, right? But when you belong to an eternal kingdom and you serve an eternal king, your security and your blessing is guaranteed for all of eternity. Let's keep reading the second half of verse 9 and first half of verse 10. It says, His throne was of fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. The fire is imagery meant to convey God's awesome power to destroy his enemies and overcome evil. In other words, the king is all powerful. One of the beautiful certainties of being a part of his kingdom is the fact that we live under his protection. Again, the, the protection of earthly kings, human kings, is only as good as they are strong. As soon as someone or something stronger comes along and displaces them, your guarantee of protection is gone. We see that even with, uh, in the business world, don't we? When companies are bought out and taken over by other companies, very often a large portion of the workforce is laid off. Right when, when you put all of your reliance in the kingdoms of this world, you're placing all of your confidence in the power of this world. But there's only one king whose power cannot be challenged. It cannot be defeated. It cannot be overthrown. It cannot even be diminished. And if you're a follower of Christ, you live under his protection, which means you have nothing to fear. Nothing, because our king is all-powerful. Let's read the last half of verse 10. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Okay, at the end of days, there's only one king who will stand in authority over all of creation, who will open up the books. Those are his records of the deeds of those on the earth. And he will judge the living and the dead. There's only one. The king has all authority. That directly affects what we receive in this life and the next. What we're given in this life is directly dependent upon the amount of authority granted to the one who is doing the giving. Think about it. Your coworker doesn't have the authority to give you a raise, but your boss does. Your neighbor generally cannot grant you legal benefits uh, as a citizen of this country, but the government can. You see, what we receive in this life isn't just a, a result of desire or goodwill or hard work or even noble intentions. It's a matter of the authority granted to the one who is doing the giving. When you receive an inheritance in a will from one's estate, that person, even in death, only has the ability to grant to you that which was in their authority when they were alive to be able to give. And so whatever portion or measure that you receive, it will only be within the scope of what that person had the authority to give to you in their possession. 
And here's the point. Our king has authority over all of the heavens and the earth. All of it. He has the authority to grant to us whatever he wants to. In Matthew 7, 7 through 11, Jesus said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If then who are, you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He is a good and benevolent king whose desire is to lavish us with good things. By the way, I'm not talking about uh, bigger houses and nicer cars. I mean, he may bless you with those things too, if that is his will, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm referring to things that neither rot nor decay, things that outlast the trappings of this world, eternal things that bring infinitely more fulfillment and joy than any material good or earthly wealth. And our king has the authority to give all of it. And the best part is he wants to. He wants to give those good things to you. You simply need ask him according to his will, okay? And so after describing these kingdoms that rule over the civilized world throughout history, in all of their power and wealth and ferocity, Daniel's vision almost dismissively turns its back on all of those earthly kingdoms as we're confronted with the infinitely more terrifyingly awesome an awe-inspiring king, the perfectly pure, eternal, all-powerful king who stands in authority over all of creation. And the message in that moment of the vision becomes crystal clear because not only are these beasts actual historical kingdoms, but they very much represent the order of the world that we're living in today, which, which is and will continue to be an ongoing state of violence and lust for power and wealth until the final coming of God's kingdom. And that is far more the point of understanding these visions as opposed to getting all hung up on exact times and dates and locations of events. We, people that are into eschatology, sometimes we go a little too far down that road. When the focus becomes, when is something going to happen? We've veered off course. Jesus said he didn't even know. Okay, yes, we're supposed to pay attention to signs and seasons, absolutely, but don't let that become your focus. We are here as long as we are here. And while we are here, we are to focus on Christ and his will for our lives, his plan, his ministry that he has for us. And when he's good, well, and ready, he'll take us home one way or the other. Okay? Whatever kingdoms we bow to on this earth, Whatever rules over our hearts and minds outside of Jesus Christ and his kingdom, whatever we allow to intimidate us, define us, hold us in fear or captivate our hearts, no matter how fierce or fantastic they may be, those kingdoms are nothing compared to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And if that truly awesome picture that Daniel paints for us isn't enough to inspire us to abandon all other pursuits that we may have placed before Christ in our lives, the other shoe is about to drop as the vision continues and we see what happens to this final wicked kingdom 
and its leader, the Antichrist, once Jesus shows up on the scene and we are vindicated. But not until after the Antichrist has his day. Let's keep reading verses 13 through 25. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the, the other horn that came up before, which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and mouth that spoke great things that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So the vision goes on to describe the end of the age, and the trials of the saints, the followers of Christ, who endure through it for a time. It is a limited time. And so Daniel asks for help from one of the angels standing there to understand what he's seeing. And he explains to Daniel that this final kingdom ruled by the Antichrist will achieve world domination and will persecute the followers of God. And yet even this is only as the Lord allows it to be. Verse 25 explains that the saints are given into the hand of the Antichrist for a limited time. Don't miss that. The saints are given into his hand, which should ultimately, even though this scene is unnerving and obviously a very difficult time of persecution lies ahead whenever that happens on this earth, but it should ultimately bring us great comfort knowing that even during the harshest periods of time for the people of God, he is still in control. He's completely sovereign, not just over the good times. He's sovereign over our most difficult times. And he's orchestrated all of this to the end where we see ultimate victory. He's sovereign over all of it to the point that he not only limits the amount of time that evil is permitted to affect us, but after that, he guarantees the final outcome for all of those who call upon his name and serve the one true king. Okay, let's finish the story for today, starting at verse 26. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. 
And the kingdom and the, and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So Daniel sees the final outcome the destruction of the enemy and his evil rule. This is looking forward now to the end of these days, the final victory for the king of kings and his followers guaranteed. And Daniel sees it, and he sees that the great inheritance that is given to the saints of God, and yet it says Daniel is left shaken, terrified at what he's just experienced. It says his color has changed as if he's about to pass out from fear, right? That's what happens when you pass out. You lose your color. And I want to point out something as I'm closing this morning that I believe is very significant here because there has been a lot written and a lot of discussion amongst scholars and researchers and teachers and pastors about exactly why Daniel was so shaken and which part of it had him so shaken up, given the fact that the end of the vision is clearly in our favor. And some people logically surmise that anytime you have a, a very vivid and frightening dream, you often wake up shaken, uh, even if it had a good ending. And so there are a lot of theories along those lines. That's fine. And yet some people will specifically point to the fourth beast and its particularly horrible nature and say, well, that was the reason that Daniel was so shaken and bothered to the point of losing his color. And all of that is well and good. But honestly, that's not how I see it at all. In fact, to me, the reason that Daniel is shaken to his core, as I read the text, seems fairly obvious. Uh, clearly, it's not obvious to everyone, including a lot of people who are probably a lot smarter than I am. So take this for what it's worth. But this is my commentary on the matter. All throughout Scripture, with few exceptions, when followers of God are confronted by evil, generally speaking, we don't see them tremble in fear or agonize over its power. Typically, we see the Spirit of God rise up in them and they handle it quite effectively. When people were possessed by demons, we see believers casting them out. When evil rulers would bear down on the followers of God, we consistently see them, Paul, Peter, the other apostles, obviously Jesus, we see them standing firm and respectfully representing God and His Word in those moments. They don't quake in fear. They don't pass out because of the evil terror before them, particularly those who'd experienced the power of God working in their lives on their behalf already, which certainly can be said of Daniel at this point. And yet all throughout Scripture, when followers of God were confronted by the presence of God Himself or one of His agents like an angel, what happened? They consistently trembled with great fear. And in many cases, they fell down as if they were dead men. They passed out. They lost their color. One of the greatest examples of this is in Revelation 1, 12 through 17, although there are many, where John has a vision of Jesus, and this is how he describes it. He says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. Where have we heard that before? His eyes were like 
a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now how does John respond to that vision of Jesus? Keep reading, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John lost his color. He fell over in awe and terror. And yet when John has visions of the beasts that correlate to Daniel in Revelation 13, he doesn't react in fear at all. Fascinating. Now, with that in mind, when you look at both instances in Daniel chapter 7 where it describes Daniel as being alarmed... Shaken to his core in verses 15 and verse 28, they both immediately follow either a vision of the Christ or his kingdom coming in power. Now maybe what had Daniel so worked up was the vision of that final evil kingdom. Maybe what had Daniel shaken to his core was the vision of violence and persecution leveled against the saints by the Antichrist. Maybe Daniel was about to pass out For the fear stirred up in him over the visions of these earthly pagan kingdoms. Maybe. But I'm not so convinced. In fact, I'm fairly certain that if you have a vision of great evil and then a vision of God himself side by side, you will definitely be shaken to your core. But not because of the bad things that you've seen. You will be shaken to your core because you've been given a glimpse of the God of the universe, the almighty king of kings, the one, according to the prophet Amos, who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. When you get a glimpse of the one who sees all, knows all, rules over all things, you will most assuredly be shaken. I don't think it was the evil parts of the vision, at least not primarily, that had Daniel trembling in his boots and losing his color. I think it was the terrifyingly awesome glimpse of the king of all things, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the author of life itself. And I believe that some of us today need to get a glimpse of that same vision. The vision of Jesus Christ, because I think we get too focused on the bad things, sometimes for far too long. When we dwell on earthly kings and worldly kingdoms that so often we subject ourselves to, when we dwell on fears and failures, when we allow our lustful desires for this world to become our focus, when we willingly serve the kingdoms of this world before God himself, we lose sight of the vision of the one who's far greater than any of those things. Truly, there is only one king, and he alone is greater than your fears. He's greater than your failures. He's greater than your sin. He's greater than your sickness. He's greater than all of the obstacles in your life. He's greater than your circumstances and all of your need and everything that you want. He's greater. There is only one king and he does not reside in the kingdoms of man. He resides in his people. If you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, he resides in you. There is no fear or failure or sickness or circumstance or force in this world that can ever take that away from you. We just need to catch a glimpse 
a clear vision of exactly who it is that we serve. You see, we should never allow any other king or kingdom or the vision of that to cloud our vision of Jesus Christ. So when you battle fear, dwell on the vision of Christ alone. When you wrestle with failure, and we all do, dwell on the vision of Christ alone. If you're fighting depression, dwell on the vision of Jesus Christ alone. When you struggle with sickness, dwell on the vision of Christ alone. And when you're bound up in sin through repentance, dwell on the vision of Jesus Christ alone. Because there is confidence, there is victory, there is joy, there is healing, and there is salvation. And all of that comes from only one King, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.